Uh, I want to welcome you to week two of our series called Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at the, uh, the storyline of David. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a character that you really have to talk about if you're going to talk about David. I think you need to understand him if you're going to need to understand David. His name is Saul. Uh, he was the very first uh, king of Israel, the king that immediately preceded King David, and um, if you know anything about the life of Saul, you know that his, his life in a lot of ways was, was uh, I think it was defined basically by a series of tragedies, and uh, I've heard it said before, you've probably heard this as well, that a smart person learns from their own mistakes, a wise person from the mistakes of others, and so my, my hope today is that we'd all become a little bit wiser by looking at, um, by a very, uh, looking at a very specific episode that took place in his life. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We are going to camp out in verses 10 through 26. And so let me read that on the front end, and, uh, and we'll get at it. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, then what is this sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This is God's word. Uh, I'd like to begin today with a riddle. We're going to talk about a problem in Saul's life that if, if you don't think you have this problem, it proves that you do. If you, uh, and if you do have this problem, you have no idea how serious it actually is in your life. So I want to talk about uh, basically three things. There's going to be three moves to this teaching. Number one, we're going to talk about what Saul did. Number two, what led to it. Number three, how we can go ahead and not do what he did. So the first thing we need to figure out is... is First off, what exactly did Saul do wrong here? Uh, Saul, as I mentioned on the front end, and you've probably heard before, Saul was uh, appointed to be the very first king over Israel, and he was given a very specific command um, regarding the Amalekites. Samuel kind of recapped it for us in verse 18, uh, where, where it says, And then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites, fight against them, until you have annihilated them. That was God's command. Annihilate the Amalekites completely. Uh, let me just, I think this is uh, worth pointing out. Modern people, when we hear that, we kind of recoil. 
um, because we want a God of, of love, but not a God of justice. You know, we're living in the kind of very therapeutic West. But um, let's think about this for a second. Uh, if you know anything about the, the group of people known as the Amalekites, you know that they were an incredibly brutal people. They um, committed all kinds of atrocities and celebrated those things. They were regularly guilty of things like genocide, infanticide, kind of perfected the art of torture, uh, raping, pillaging, you name it. And so the only way that you stop a group of people from doing that to more people is through force, all right? Uh, despite what we have a tendency to think in our culture, you can raise as much awareness of the Amalekites as you want. It's not going to stop them from doing what they do. So when God says, I want you to destroy them, what he's saying is, I've had enough of their wickedness. I'm not going to tolerate this any longer. Uh, and so Saul and Israel, I am commissioning you as my agents of divine justice. But the thing that's, that's uh, it, it's, it's really significant about this command, when God says to completely annihilate the Amalekites, I mean, he specifically said you're not to take any plunder whatsoever, what God was doing even in that command is he was carving out a nation that would do things differently. He was commanding Israel that even when they had to wage war, to wage war differently. Because every other nation in the ancient Near East, and even nations today, when they go to war with another nation, despite you know, the just cause that they might talk about, they went to war to enrich themselves, either by acquiring slave labor from the civilization that they would conquer, or else just simply, you know, stealing the resources. And so when God says, I want you to completely annihilate them, what he's saying is, uh, this is not about personal enrichment. This is about divine justice. And so I'm calling you to do this thing, but you're not to profit at all. This is not imperialism. This is divine justice. Uh, you're not to take slaves. You're not to take cattle. You're not to take resources, nothing. That's the command that Saul was given here. What Saul actually did is recorded in verse 9, which says, Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted th things. So in taking the king of Amalek, King Agag, and all of the, basically the best resources, everything of value, what's happening is Saul is waging war exactly the way that every other nation would wage war. He was waging war with the intent to enrich himself and elevate his platform. And so what's happened here is Saul has completely adopted the values of the very nation that God called him to destroy. So it's important to understand this is not just Saul technically failed to perfectly carry out, you know, the finer details of a command given him by God. That's not what this is. What's happening here is Saul, as the very first king of Israel, is already failing to lead the nation of Israel in a way that would be holy and set apart and honoring to God, and instead he's turning them into the next Amalek. It's, a, it, it's an incredibly big deal. It's a terrible foot for the nation of Israel to get started off on. And so as a result, he was rejected as king. So let's pause here. No one in this room has been commissioned to annihilate anybody. Uh, I'm just going to tell you that's the case. We're, if you think otherwise, you're wrong, okay? So while, while what we just covered might be interesting to you, uh, it's probably not terribly relevant to you. So the next thing we're going to talk about here is, is what led to Saul's failure. What was underneath it that led to this disobedience? Here's where this teaching is, is going to hit home for all of us. Here's where the failure of Saul becomes really relevant. When you look at the, if you want to call it the character progression of Saul in Scripture, specifically in, in 1 Samuel, um, it's really interesting because Saul starts off as, as at least what appears to be a very humble guy. Uh, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21, before Saul was king, uh, he had a meeting with Samuel, and, and uh, Samuel indicates that God has great things on the horizon for Saul. Uh, 1 Samuel 9, 21 tells us exactly what Saul said in response to that. It says, Saul responded, Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes, and isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjaminite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? Now, that's the kind of guy that I would want to be the king. Uh, because think about the alternative. It would have been a, a real issue if, if Samuel, prophet of the Lord, 
says, Saul, you're going to be the first king ever in, in Israel's history. And Saul's response is, oh, I'm surprised it took him this long to figure that out. Of course I'm going to be afraid. Like, that's a humble-sounding guy. He recognizes he's not an insignificant guy. He recognizes he doesn't have the resume for the job. He's unsure of himself. He knows that he doesn't have a lot of clout and a shame and honor society. We can work with that. And in the next chapter, chapter 10, it actually says when Samuel was going to pull Saul out, you know, to anoint him as king in front of the people, he was actually hiding in the luggage, Scripture records. The Lord had to say he's hiding in the luggage. So they go grab this guy, they drag him out by force, and they make him king. Admittedly, not the most inspirational guy you've ever called king, but I still think it's better than the alternative. You know, he's, he's, he's modest, he's shy, he's unassuming, he at least appears humble. So here's the question that the life of King Saul raises. In five chapters, this guy goes from being so unsure of himself that he's hiding from God's call in his life to being so full of himself that he's flagrantly disregarding God's call in his life. The question is, how do you get from point A to B? And the answer, and this is the whole point of what we're talking about today, the answer is this horrible thing called self Deception. If you do not think you struggle with self-deception, it proves that you do. Uh, if you do struggle with self-deception, I can almost guarantee you have no idea how big the problem in your life actually is. This whole episode in Saul's life, uh, it, it, it really boils down to God had to send his prophet into the life of Saul to tell him what he'd done and show him what he'd become because he was so self-deceived that he could no longer see reality anymore, and it cost him everything. That's essentially what ended the reign of King Saul here. And, and so what you have, self-deception, if you want to define it, self-deception is the human heart's seemingly infinite capacity to know something at one level while keeping ourselves from knowing it at a deeper level because we don't want to know it. We don't want to face it. We don't want to deal with it. We find it threatening. It might require action of us that we don't want to take so we can know something at one level while kind of deliberately deciding to remain ignorant of an, at, at a deeper level. Self-deception is not the, the worst thing that you'll ever do, but it will lead to the worst things that you do. Self-deception is what turned King Saul into an unassuming guy who felt unqualified for the job of leading God's people uh, to a guy who was so arrogant that he disregarded what God said and led the nation of Israel off the tracks to becoming just like basically the second king of the Amalekites. Self-deception is what got him there. Self-deception is what will have you waking up one day to realize that you are a person you swore you would never become and you've done things you swore you were never capable of. I heard a story a couple years ago kind of perfectly uh, illustrates what, what self-deception really entails. It's a true story of an allied commander who was liberating a death camp uh, near the end of World War II. This is a battle-hardened guy. Um, he'd basically seen everything that combat can show you. But when he saw this death camp, when he saw the carnage, uh, when he saw the inhumanity, when he saw the piles of bodies, despite everything that he'd seen in his military career, he was, he was completely speechless, completely taken back. And so he went into the neighboring town of this death camp. Basically, this camp was in this town's backyard, uh, and he wanted to know how on earth this happened. And everyone in the town, officials on down to residents, all of them said the same thing. They said we had absolutely no idea what was happening. And so this commander actually made every single resident of the town walk through this death camp and see what was going on right under their nose. And it had a, a profound impact on the people. It horrified them exactly as much as it did this allied commander. But the mayor of that town and his wife after going through that death camp, they went home, and later that day, both the mayor and the mayor's wife decided to hang themselves. And when they did, this is a true story, you can look this up, when they did, they left a note, and this is all the note said. They said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. And, and you know what they're getting at there. What they're admitting is we had an awareness that something terrible was happening. We, we knew enough to know that something wasn't right, but we made the conscious decision to not investigate so that we wouldn't be forced to do something that we weren't ready and willing and prepared to do. Self-deception. And that's exactly where Saul is here. I mean, you, you, you heard it as we read through it on the front end. You hear him kind of playing these games with Samuel, where Samuel says, 
Why didn't you listen to the, the command God gave you? And Saul says, well, I did listen to the command that God gave me. And Samuel says, then how do you explain all these cattle? And he says, well, we were going to dedicate them to the Lord. This is a guy who's wrapped around the axle of self-deception. He's just not being honest with himself. He doesn't know that he's disobeyed God and has willfully led Israel astray, but he knows. He knows. Self-deception. And it's cost him everything. So here's the question that this should raise for you and I. If self-deception is such a serious thing that it essentially ruined Saul's life, completely derailed his life, as the rest of, of his story will go on to show, if it's that big of a deal, then how do you know if self-deception has taken root in your life? And the answer is, you can't know because you're deceiving yourself, which would be a terrible place to end this teaching. And so thankfully, what this story gives us, uh, if you look carefully I remember I took, a, I took a class at Moody Bible Institute, and, and we talked about how to read Hebrew narrative. And one of the things that it, that it drove home is that the conversations that are recorded for us in Scripture are, you know, certainly, obviously, a whole lot more was said than, than you know, was recorded. You know, Jesus in the gospel accounts, he said a whole lot more things than were recorded for us. And so when, when authors were inspired by the Spirit of God to record what they've recorded, you should really hold a magnifying glass to what's said and what's not said and how it's said and, the, you know, the Greek words and Hebrew words used there because those words are revealing, you know, what's going on behind the surface in a person's life. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you hold a magnifying glass to this exchange between Saul and Samuel, what it will show you is, um, I, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to pull out four symptoms of self-deception. And so even if you can't know if you're self-deceived, what you can do is you can look at this dialogue as sort of a diagnostic tool and ask yourself, okay, if these four symptoms that were evident in Paul, as Saul's life, if they're evident in your and my life, then we have the same disease that he had, all right? And I'll give them to you on the front end. Here they are. There's, I'm sure there's more symptoms of the disease of self-deception than this, but here's four that are real obvious in Saul's life. Insecurity, blame shifting, fake religiosity, and self-absorption. Let me, let me walk through all four of these briefly. First up, first symptom of self-deception is insecurity. <clears throat> Verse 13, when Saul is first confronted, here's what it says. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. You know the number one way to tell that somebody has not in fact carried out the Lord's instructions that they begin the conversation by telling you that they have. This, this is the equivalent <clears throat> of me coming home from work and my five-year-old daughter, Scarlett, peels around the corner and says, great to see you, Dad. I just want to begin by saying I've done nothing wrong while you were away. <laughs> it's a, that is exactly what that is. What you have in Saul's life, you know, because when, when the prophet of the Lord is coming to you and you've just done something really stupid, you know it's not going to be good news. So this is Saul, you know, feeling the need to justify himself, you know, sort of holding up his achievements, making himself look really good in the eyes of others. And that, self, that, that desire to self-justify finds its root in a deep-seated insecurity, which is the first symptom of self-deception, according to this passage. Secondly, and, and I think this, actually I'm, I'm positive that, that this second symptom builds off of the first one. The second symptom of self-deception is blame shifting. All right, so notice how this conversation goes afterwards. Verses 14 and 15, Samuel replied, then what is this sound of sheep and cattle I hear? It, this would be funny if it wasn't so sad. You know, Saul knew, Samuel knew that Saul knew that the command could not have been any more clear. You leave nothing standing or living in Amalek. And so Saul greets Samuel with, I've done exactly what God said, and he's literally surrounded by the cattle, the livestock, the resources, the wealth that he didn't destroy. And so Samuel's in this awkward position, and, and he, you know, you, you, you can just sympathize with him. Okay, let, let's play this game then. Okay, you've done exactly as the Lord commanded, Saul. Then uh, exhibit A, explain the literal livestock bouncing around you. And so here's, here's how Saul explains it. Verse 15, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. So notice, 
Saul is the king of Israel, and yet he completely fails to take any kind of ownership whatsoever and instead completely throws his troops under the bus. And actually what he's doing here is even uglier than that, if, if you pay real careful attention to what he says. He says, the troops are the ones that kept some of the cattle alive. They're the ones who disobeyed. But then at the end of verse 15, he turns around and he says, but the rest we destroyed. So when it comes to assigning blame, that's on them. They did that. You know how soldiers are, kind of bloodthirsty, can't really control them. I guess they weren't listening very well. But when it comes to receiving credit, then, then all of a sudden it's this we game. I had a hand in that. This is a master class in how not to behave if you're in a leadership position. And, and some of you know this. I, I was talking to somebody recently. He talked about, um, you know, being in a number of different situations and, and, and companies having to work for a leader who was not a leader. And it's a painful thing. And I, I would be totally candid with you as I was putting this together. Uh, all my life when I've heard about the story of Saul, my heart has gone out to the guy because I look at his life and I sort of weigh his life against David's life. And I think, man, David did a lot of really dumb things too. Saul just seems like wasn't a whole lot of mercy and forgiveness extended toward him. But if you hold any, any like magnifying glass to Saul's life whatsoever, it's abundantly clear it was an act of love for God's people that caused God to unseat Saul. Because if you have a, if you have a person with this kind of character as the leader of the nation of Israel, a, 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 a leader who is so insecure that they're, you know, constantly justifying themselves, they're blame shifting, you know, they're, they're dodging responsibility but trying to take kind of credit. Leaders like that do a, a lot of damage to a lot of people. And so for God to leave somebody like that in a position of authority would have caused a lot of harm. And so God, God was unwilling to do that. So first off, the symptoms of self-deception, you have insecurity. Number two, you have, you have uh, blame shifting. But number three, what you can see here is fake religiosity. If you, if you camp out on this exchange here, you notice that the stated reason Saul tells Samuel the cattle was spared, he says, in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And you, you, can, you, know, you can hear that there's a pathetic attempt to manipulate Samuel there. You know, Samuel is a prophet of the Lord, and Saul's saying, hey, I know you care a whole lot about that Lord you're always speaking on behalf of. We spared the cattle for your God. But the, if you think about it, the fact that Saul even, even believed that that was permissible just shows how disconnected he really was from God. Uh, it shows how little he understood what a relationship with God is supposed to be uh, all about, to believe that that's all that God was after. And that's why Samuel goes on with this famous oracle at the end of this exchange, and, and, and says to Saul, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. To, to, to pay attention, to heed, is better than the fat of rams. What Samuel's trying to get Saul to understand there, he's saying, Saul, this was never about sheep or goats. God never wanted sheep and goats. He wanted you. That's what he was after. That's what means the most to him. I was reading a commentary about this passage this week. I love the way that it phrased it. It said, in sacrifices... Man offers only the flesh of animals, whereas in obedience, he offers his own will. All the smoke and fat on Gilgal's altar would never replace the pleasure God could have had from the living sacrifice of Saul's will. And that's something that people who are simply religious never understand. They might think that they have a relationship with God, but all it really is is, is moralism. It's about, you know, doing a bunch of things for God, accomplishing a bunch of tasks for God, you know, abiding by some rules and regulations for God, but it, it, never becomes, it never becomes something to where you love him so much because of what he's done for you that your desire is to do his will, regardless of what that costs you. So, so thirdly, what you see here is fake religiosity, but the final symptom Saul shows us of self-deception, and I think this is the ugliest one, is number four, self-absorption. I mean, you, you, can, you can see this in anybody's life. You can see it in Saul. You can do a case study throughout human history. Self-deception and self-absorption go hand in hand because they're both all about the self. Now, if you read this story and, and you, you even go beyond it, you'll notice uh, that when Saul is finally backed into a corner because he hems and haws with Samuel and tries to kind of, you know, slide out of responsibility by you know, finding a loophole, well, you know, we, we did kill some of them and we were just going to sacrifice the ones we did. It wasn't my fault, it was the troops. Once he finally gets backed into a corner and he knows that he really has nowhere to go, 
Uh, God's not going to approve of this. Samuel's not going to be fooled by this. Uh, twice, he does say the words, I've sinned. Uh, and that for a moment almost looks like, okay, Saul's getting it. You know, he's, 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 he's a little bit thick, but he'll, he, you know, we can work with this guy. But if you get to the end of this, this story, down in verse uh, 30, and you look at how he phrases his apology, you can see the motives behind his apparent repentance. Verse 30, Saul says, I've sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Let me read it again. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Now, now that request shows what this is about for Saul. What that request shows is that for Saul, you know, whatever sorrow he did feel, it was never about understanding that he had wounded the heart of the God who had given him everything by sheer grace. You know, go back to 1 Samuel 9, 21. Saul knew once upon a time he was from the, the, the most insignificant tribe, from the smallest clan. You know, he had no reason to even dream about being king in that shame and honor culture. And yet God sat him on the throne of his people, the first ever king that he trusted with that position, through an act of sheer grace. And, and what Saul's words here to Samuel prove, his sorrow was never about understanding that he wounded that God. And, and I mentioned this earlier. If you compare, it's so telling when you compare the way that Saul responds to his failure to the way that David responded to his. You know, I, 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 I touched on this earlier. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, David does something that from every angle I can see is quantifiably worse than what Saul does here. That's his episode with Bathsheba and Uriah and the child that lost its life because of what David did. I look at 2 Samuel 12 and I see a failure that is quantifiably worse than anything Saul did here. And yet God accepts David's apology and restores him, but does not do that for Saul, and it raises the question, why? And if you compare and contrast the two, you'll see why. Because in both instances, you have a king of God's people who has flagrantly violated God's command for their life. And with both kings, God sends his prophet. To Saul, he sends Samuel. To David, he sends Nathan. But, but if, if you want to check it this week, it, it is worth reading. But 2 Samuel 12, when God sends Nathan the prophet into the life of David, there is no jostling with David. There's no argument with David. You know, Samuel has to all but pull teeth to get Saul to, it, to get to the point where he can say, okay, fine, I did something wrong, I guess. Can we just move past this? David, Scripture records, says exactly one thing in response to the prophet of God pointing out sin in his life. This is all he says, I have sinned against the Lord, period. There's no qualifier. There's no condition. It's just I've sinned against the Lord. And that phrase is so significant. It's so significant because it proves that David understood something Saul never understood. David understood that, that his sin, no matter who else his sin wounded, his sin was ultimately against God. It was ultimately against his creator, his sustainer, his heavenly king, his heavenly father. And so David understood that sin doesn't just break God's rules, it breaks God's heart. It's a deeply personal thing against a deeply personal God. And these words uh, that, 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 that Saul offers to Samuel here proves he never understood any, anything about that. Asking Samuel, okay, can we just kind of sweep this under the rug? Can you honor me in front of the elders so that, you know, we can kind of clean up this PR nightmare? That proves that for Saul, this was only ever about his image. This is about his reputation. This is about his brand. This is about his platform. It's, it's self-absorption is all it is. And so in, in walking through that, this becomes a diagnostic tool for you and I. We should look at Saul's life here and ask ourselves the question, do any of those symptoms appear in, in my life? Do any of those symptoms appear in your life? Can you look into your heart and see an insecurity that leads to a, a feeling that you need to justify yourself? Can you, can you look into you know, different interpersonal relationships in your life and see where you have, a lot of, you have a lot of trouble saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, period. And instead, it's got to be qualifiers and conditions and blame shifting and, well, it wasn't technically my fault, but you, 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 know, you also want to take the credit. Can you look into your life, maybe your relationship with God, and admit that it is a lot more like religion than a relationship? That it is a lot more, you know, feeling like you're checking boxes so that you can feel like a good person rather than your, design, your desire being in line with that of your Heavenly Father? And, and lastly, is self-absorption something that you could be rightfully accused of? 
when you're confronted with sin in your life, is the sorrow that you feel over that, is it more about what your sin costs you or what it costs God? Uh, if you can't see any of that in your life, I'm, I'm just going to say all of us have that in our own hearts. If you can't see any of that in your heart, I think you're the most self-deceived person of all. And so the question that this leaves us with is, what are we supposed to do about this? In other words, how can we avoid falling into the trap that literally ended the kingship of Saul and, and basically ended his life? And the answer is, first and foremost, we need to understand what, what led to self-deception in his life and what leads to self-deception in ours. And this story gives us an answer to that in two parts. Two parts. I want to read verse 12 and verse 17 to you. Verse 12 says, Early in the morning Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. That is bad news. If you find yourself at a place in life where you're setting up monuments for yourself, you have zigged where you should have zagged. Other versions of the Bible will, will, will translate that, set up a monument in his own honor. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. Now put that together with what Samuel says to Saul in verse 17. It says, Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Uh, what Samuel is saying here is Saul, you know, he, he's, he's actually recalling the very first interaction he had with a young, unassuming, insecure, lanky kid named Saul. He, he's saying, Saul, I remember when you knew who you were. I remember when you knew that there was nothing on your resume that would cause anybody to take a second look at you. You knew that you were from the least significant clan of the smallest tribe and yet look what God's done in your life. He puts you to the most, he, he, he literally called you through an act of sheer grace to the most significant office in his, in, in, in his entire people's nation. It's, it, it, what he's saying is you once upon a time knew how insignificant you were, but God gave you significance. God was your source of significance. God anointed you to this position that you're in. God gave you an identity, and, and yet, he's, yet he's saying and reminding him of that is he's saying, but somewhere along the line, Saul, that stopped being enough for you. And somewhere along the line, you started trying to create an identity and achieve significance on your own, and now you're out here building monuments for yourself. And that right there, that is the heart of self-deception. All self-deception in Saul's life, all self-deception in your and my life begins with our decision to try to create an identity for ourselves outside of God, period. Uh, I love the way that Tim Keller put this in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, which is a book about the resurrection of Jesus that I'm reading right now. Here's what he said. I, just, I read this on Friday, and as soon as I read it, I highlighted it. I knew we were going to talk about it. He says, any identity not rooted in Jesus' unmerited love whether a traditional one based on family approval or a Western one based on individual achievement, any such identity is fragile and leads to denial and a lack of self-awareness. Now, let me, let me, before we get to what this means for us, let me explain how this, this works itself out in Saul's life. Saul, evidently, it's clear in this story, Saul needed to be seen as great, not just in his own eyes, but in the eyes of other people. His identity was wrapped up in being seen as this kind of wise, powerful, you know, awe-inspiring king in the eyes of other people. Uh, wasn't enough that God said that you're the king, that God, you know, called him to, uh, gave him significance, and, and that he was great in, in the eyes of God. He needed that from other people. So when God gave him the command to completely wipe out Amalek and take nothing from Amalek, Saul could see the writing on the walls. If you walk in obedience to that command, that's going to cost you significance in the eyes of your own soldiers because you're basically saying, hey, we're going to destroy this nation. You're going to work really hard and you're not going to benefit from it at all. all right? Soldiers tend to not love the general that caused them to that. And, and furthermore, this could probably you know, cause him to take a hit in the eyes of his own nation because, of course, Israel as a society would want to be richer for having demolished 
you know, a, a, a neighboring people group. And not only that, Saul knew that, that in this day and age, a shame and honor culture where, you know, strength was the most important social commodity that you had, if you go to war and you don't humiliate your enemies and, and you know, practice brutality, well, then people might see you as weak. So Saul is at a crossroads in his life where he knows that if I listen to what God has called me, it's going to cost me in the eyes of other people. And because Saul's identity was wrapped up in what everybody else thought of him because he got away from what God said was true about him, he broke, he broke left. And so he disobeys God's call in his life. And then when Samuel comes into his life to confront him about his sin, which would mean that, that Saul now needs to face himself and accept the fact that he's failed and he's not the world's greatest king or greatest leader or strongest whatever, he was unable to do that. He didn't have the ability to face himself. That's exactly what Keller's talking about here. That the moment we try to create an identity for ourselves outside of the love of God that's been poured out on us by Jesus Christ, in that moment, we begin barreling down the path of self-deception and the ruin that it's eventually going to lead us to. So with all that being said, I want, I want to give you two ideas because it's fine to talk about the life of Saul, uh, but, but really this, this story doesn't mean anything if it's just an interesting case study about Saul. So there's, there's two things that you and I need to understand if we're going to avoid falling into the trap that Saul fell into. These are going to be our, our, our only two ideas today. I know I took my time getting to them, but hopefully we'll move through them quickly. Here's the first one. Here's what the life of Saul shows us. Number one, we need to understand that every human heart builds monuments. When, when this story says that Saul is out here building monuments for himself, the text is almost begging you to think back to Genesis chapter 11 when all of mankind got together to build a, man, a monument for itself known as the Tower of Babel. Uh, and in Genesis 11, there's one stated reason, Scripture says, that they got together to build this tower and it's because they wanted to make a great name for themselves. And Scripture says every human heart desires to do that. That your and my heart, all of us, have this intrinsic need to build our own towers of Babel, to build our own monuments, to try to get glory and try to get significance because we know deep within us that we don't have glory and we don't have significance. Because every human heart has this, regardless of whether or not you believe the Bible's true, every single human heart knows that it can't it can't stand up under scrutiny. We all know that there's something wrong with us, that deep within us there's problems that we don't have answers for because of sin, and there's an intrinsic kind of shame that we all deal with, and it's just a question of how we compensate for that. And the way that we compensate for that is by doing what Saul did, where we build monuments. But here's the question. The most important question for you to ask yourself in light of what we're seeing uh, uh, Saul did here is what does that look like in your life? Some of the most profound kind of self-knowledge you can have is the knowledge of how your own heart builds monuments. In other words, where do you tend to try to create your identity rather than resting in God? How does that manifest itself in your life? Until you have that question answered, you don't really know yourself. So first off, we need to understand that every human heart builds monuments, just like Saul did. But, but secondly, and this is the answer, number two, finally, what we need is an identity that is received rather than achieved. This is what Samuel was basically hinting at with Saul. When he was, he was pointing at the core issue in Saul's life, he's saying, Saul, somewhere along the line, you stopped resting in what God said about you and who God made you. The identity that you could have received in him stopped being enough for you, and so you tried to go and create one of your own. That's the root problem in Saul's life. It's the root problem in all of our lives. Now, for us, living on the other side of the cross in you know, the New Testament, we know that God offers us an even greater identity than the one that he offered to Saul by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And if you pan the New Testament, it is amazing how much real estate is just devoted to reminding followers of Jesus that they have a new identity in Jesus and what that identity is like. Because obviously God knew we were going to need to be reminded of this over and over again. But I'll tell you, probably my favorite verse about this subject is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
What that means, and I, even if you know this cognitively, there's a good chance that you don't know it deeply enough. What that verse means, and what the New Testament teaches us over and over again, is that in Jesus, the righteousness of God is not just something you possess, it's something that you have become. So that when, what this verse, just take the verse for, at face value. It means when God looks at you, if you've given your life to Jesus, he sees his own righteousness staring him back in the face. Because the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, you have a new identity. And, and putting on this identity and growing in an understanding of the identity that you have essentially frees us from all the things that destroyed Saul. So, so earlier, I gave you four symptoms of self-deception. I want to close today by explaining how this new identity that Jesus gives us frees us from all of those symptoms. First and foremost, the identity Jesus offers us replaces insecurity with security. It replaces insecurity with security. Years ago, I, I came across a quote from a Philippians commentary that means more to me now than it did when I first read it. It says, the remainder of our earthly life is an outworking of what God has already inworked. Listen to this. We are called to become what we are. This is the mighty imperative of Christian ethics, and I love this. Every other ethical system calls us to the costly effort of becoming what we are not. Only in Jesus are you free to become what he's already made you to be. Now, what this is saying is the moment we go down the path that Saul went down, where instead of resting in the identity we receive by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, we try to create one for ourselves. In that moment, what we've functionally done is we've cursed ourselves to a life in which we're trying, um, I'll quote it, it's where we're doomed to the costly effort of trying to become what we're not. So let's talk about how this breaks down. And maybe something I'm about to say is going to hit home for somebody. Build your identity, find your identity in being successful, and, and here's the trajectory that you're setting for yourself. Number one, you will be so driven by the need to achieve that it will cost you in basically every other area of your life, whether that's your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your mental health, your, your spiritual health, your emotional health, whatever it is, not, not only will you be so driven that you'll make foolish decisions in basically every other area of your life, but on top of that, no matter how much you achieve, you'll never feel like you've achieved enough. You'll always be haunted by this nagging suspicion that you're a failure. I don't know how many quotes I've thrown at you guys from celebrities that prove that over and over and over again. Right, here's another one. Find your identity in being the perfect parent that raises perfect children, which I think a lot of people are doing because it's an easy thing to do. Just think about this. If you try to, to find your identity and, 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 and you need to think of yourself as a perfect parent that raises perfect children, here's two outcomes. Number one, you're going to be unable to face it. You're going to be unable to deal with the issues that present in your child's life when and not if those issues present themselves. You're going to have to not face that, play pretend with that, which is going to be bad for your child. But then when you do fail as a parent, when and not if, you fail as a parent because you're not Jesus, you're going to be completely crushed under the weight of condemnation. There's no forgiveness there, which is going to be terrible for you. Or, or, or here's, here's one other one, just generally speaking, because this is where Saul was. Build your identity. Find your identity in, in just your reputation in the eyes of others, and, and what's going to happen is you're going to be completely undone. No, number one, you're going to make really foolish decisions to try to please other people. That's the life of Saul. But then you're going to be completely crushed by criticism and rejection. Now, what's happened underneath all of that is you've doomed yourself to the costly effort of trying to become something that you're not. But the in the gospel, because of the gospel, what happens is when you give your life to Jesus and now you receive this identity that Jesus has earned for you that you don't have to achieve and you grow in your understanding of that, that completely undoes all of the insecurity that comes with feeling like you need to prove yourself every single day. Now you have an, a, not just a spiritual, but a psychological and an, and an emotional foundation to stand on that creates a kind of supernatural security. And, and what happens is that in Jesus, even if you never become as successful as you planned to be, which who does? 
And even if you prove that you're not Jesus and you, and you do fail your kids occasionally, which what parent can't say that they've done that, and even if you do face criticism and, re- and rejection and your reputation takes a hit, of course that's still going to sting because we're not sociopaths. Of course that's still going to hurt us, but we're going to be able to say through that and we're going we're, we're to be able to remain buoyant through that by reminding ourselves, by being able to say in our heart of hearts, hey, all of that's true about me and probably worse. However, when God sees me, he sees his own righteousness staring him back in the face. And that does not depend on what's in my heart. That depends on what's in his heart by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. So first off, this identity, I'm not going to take as much time on the rest of them, but I wanted to, to, to camp out on that one. First off, this identity replaces our insecurity with security. But building off of that, what this identity also does is it allows us to take radical ownership of our failures instead of blame shifting. Right, if, if you know that in Jesus, God has already made up his mind about you, you have his infinite love, his infinite approval, his infinite acceptance, he's never going to change his mind, that frees you not only to face your own heart, but to go hunting in your own heart for all of the areas of your life that need to change. Now, conversely, if any part of your self-worth depends on your moral performance, you're not going to be able to face your failures. But when you know that Jesus has taken care of that for you, Now you're free. Now you're free to live a lifestyle of repentance. And when you come across areas of your life that are still broken, and when you come to the realization that the problems are still deeper than you thought, sure, it's going to grieve us because sin should grieve us, but it's not going to condemn us because in Jesus we know that our judgment day has been moved from our future to our past. All right, thirdly, this this identity Jesus offers is going to replace fake religiosity with a life-giving relationship with God. In in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul tells believers that in Jesus we are no longer slaves, but we're sons. And what he's saying is that if not for the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the only way we can relate to God is the way that a slave relates to its master, where every day we're, we're trying to earn our keep and, and, you know, be productive enough to be valuable in his eyes, and we're constantly worried that he's going to put us out on the street. But the moment that we give our lives to Jesus, Scripture says we can relate to God with all of the intimacy and all of the freedom of a child relating to their father. And then what that means is that we can run toward God and not away from him when we fail, and it means that we can and we should be experiencing greater intimacy with him as we pray and we develop a prayer life with him. Fourthly and lastly, Instead of self-absorption, the identity that Jesus gives us enables us to be radically self-giving. All right, Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that although Jesus had infinite glory and infinite beauty and infinite significance, he gave up all of that for us so that we could find that in him. And, and really, what, if you read Philippians chapter 2, what it's saying is that the problem in all of our relationships is that you have two people who are both starving for glory demanding that each other give it to each other. It doesn't work. It's two starving people fighting over food that neither of them have. And so, of course, there's trouble. Of course, there's problems in our marriages, with our kids, with our friendships, whatever it is. But what the gospel says is Jesus laid down his life to give you the glory and the significance and the beauty that your heart most needs. And to the degree that you receive that in him and grow in an understanding of that in him, now instead of demanding that other people give you significance, you're free to do for someone else what God through Christ has done for you, which is ironically the most satisfying life that there is. And I just want to bottom line all this by saying there is no identity you'll find that does this for you because there's no identity you'll find like the one that Jesus offers you. It's the only identity that rather than demanding that you achieve it, ask only that you humbly receive it. Let me call the worship team up. We're going to close with this. The way that I understand this, there's only two kinds of people listening to me right now. Maybe you're listening to this and you have never put this identity on because you have not yet trusted in Jesus. I know that there's a number of people that over the last year, uh, you know, maybe you checked out a couple of our sermons online, and you've come to a couple of our services in person, and, you know, the gospel, you know, this man Jesus, you know, the feeling that you've gotten here, it's been, it's been exciting, it's not what you thought it was, it's, it's um, you know, maybe even inspirational to you, but you're still admiring it from a distance, because you have not made the personal decision to put your trust in Jesus. And if you're here right now, I just want to challenge you to, for the first time in your life, make the decision to put your trust in Jesus. 
And if you're wondering about how to do that or what that's supposed to look like, it is simple. It is as simple as praying with me right now, Father, would you please accept me on the basis of what Jesus has done for me? That it, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Father, would you please accept me, not because of anything that I've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what your son Jesus has done for me. Scripture says that if you can pray those words with a posture of heart that recognizes your dependency on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then in that very moment, you are a new creation. Your sins are as far removed as you taken from you. For the rest of us, you've already prayed that prayer. You've made that decision. And so everything that I've talked about today is already objectively true as you, of you, but maybe you're like Saul in the sense that somewhere along the line, you've just forgotten to put it on. You've stopped living out of that reality, and so all the symptoms that Saul experienced in his life are showing up in yours. And if that's true of you, which I think is true of every believer, you know, as long as we live on this side of eternity, our ongoing work is to work the gospel into our own lives. And so if any of that resonates with you, I just want to encourage you as we close today to go back to the cross and see the Son of God losing his glory, losing his beauty, losing his power, losing his significance for you because he was taking your identity on himself that he might give you his identity in its place. And, and stay there until that smashes the monuments that your heart so naturally wants to build because you realize that Jesus Christ himself is the monument that has been destroyed and remade for you and I and now stands at the right hand of the throne of God interceding on our behalf so that we can say there will never be condemnation for us. To the degree that you and I understand that, to that degree, it'll melt our hearts and it'll free us from the danger of self-deception. Let's be a community that understands that. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, thank you so much that in Jesus we have so much more than a second chance. We have a second life. We are born again into a new spiritual reality with a new identity. We relate to you entirely differently, and it's a life that depends not on our moral efforts, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for everything that that makes available to us, God, but we are so prone to forgetting it. We are so prone to trying to create identities for ourselves, to not trust you to be the source of everything that our heart most desperately needs, and to try to create monuments for ourselves. Father, would you cause the gospel to be so real to us that it would smash the monuments of our hearts? that we would trust in the finished work of Jesus, that we would put on this new identity that Jesus died to make available to us and we would live out of that with all the freedom and all the joy and all the peace and all the love that that makes available to us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.